Listeners like you support the Historian's Podcast and keep history alive on the internet. Please donate by clicking the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com. This is Suzanne Dunlap. I am the author of the forthcoming book, The Portraitist, a novel of Adelaide Labigiard, which will be published by She Writes Press on August 30th. And I'm so happy to be a guest here today to talk a little bit about the history behind this book, which is absolutely fascinating as it takes place before, during, and after the French Revolution. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Author Suzanne Dunlop joins us to discuss her book, The Portraitist, a novel based on the life of Adelaide Labille-Guillard. Um, she was a portraitist, but that means that she painted pictures? What that means is she made, painted portraits of people. That was her speciality. The thing about art in 18th century, in, in the middle of the 18th century in France, it was all sort of uh, controlled by the academy. And there were different categories of painters. And the highest category you could be, actually artists in general, the highest category you could be was a history painter. Women couldn't be history painters because they weren't allowed to take the classes at the Louvre uh, that studied anatomy that studied the male nude. So it was deemed that they were not allowed to be history painters. So a lot of women who were artists chose instead to become portraitists and to concentrate on uh, doing portraits of royalty, nobles, commoners, whatever. And so that's why they were, uh, that's why the portraitist rather than the artist or the painter. Was she good at it? Oh, <laughs> yes, she was very good at it. She was, she was actually, after the revolution, she was the first woman artist to be uh, given accommodations in the Louvre, which was a great privilege. And men had had that privilege for a long time. Uh, the Louvre at the time was not a museum. It was a place that had lots of offices and apartments and studios in it. And uh, artists in the academy... Male, male artists often were given free accommodations there where they had studios and they lived and they taught. But Adelaide had tried to get that before the revolution, before everything blew up, and was unsuccessful because of the man who ran everything absolutely hated the idea of women artists and said that it would be a, a sort of a bad influence to have women in those studios in the Louvre. But she did have studios in the Louvre, no? After the revolution. Before uh. the revolution, she wanted them and wasn't allowed to have them. Then in 1795, when she came back to Paris after the revolution, she was awarded those studios. She was also an, an activist, uh, a feminist. Uh, was she a revolutionary? Uh, she wasn't a revolutionary. I mean, she was active at the beginning, and especially in reforms... She was trying to get reforms to the academy itself done. She was very sympathetic with um, the delegates to the National Convention, the sort of moderate people, the um, Girondists, so to speak, as opposed to the Montagnards, which were the ones that Robespierre, you know, became <clears throat> the head of and that ended up killing everybody. <laughs> so, um, right. so she she was there. But, but what was interesting about that is that 
she relied for her income a lot on portraits of people in the royal family. She was the official portraitist for Mesdames, the king's aunts. And she also, right before the revolution, was given a massive commission by the Duc de Provence, who was the king's younger brother, to paint a huge picture that was uh, of somebody receiving uh, an order that was supposed to go into the, for the hospitalers, and it was supposed to go into the old Ecole Militaire. And this picture that she was, she was commissioned to paint was 19 by 17 feet, really huge. She may have finished it, but the problem is that, like many of her pictures, and one of the reasons we don't know as much about her as we know about her rival, who who fled in 1789, uh, a lot of her pictures were destroyed in the Revolution. Somebody thought they would put them all in a bonfire at some point in some place that we don't know. So that picture plus... There's actually a copy of a portrait that she did of Robespierre before the Revolution, but the original one that she did was probably destroyed. You explained it once, but... What was the big 19 by 17 picture that she was painting of the uh, aunt of the king or the, with this woman of the royal family? Well, actually, this, this was for the king's younger brother who commissioned it, the Duc de Provence. And it was, the subject of it was um, uh, the awarding of the Order of the Hospitallers, which was a sort of a noble order of knights in Paris. And it was supposed to go up on the wall of this building in a very big, empty room. And it was, you know, it would have a bunch of people in it, men coming up and being given the order and the Duc de Provence. And I think there's a sketch that exists, but nobody obviously nowadays has ever seen the actual thing. It was the kind of thing that that royalty paid to do. Oh, and she was going to be paid 30,000 livres, which was a lot of money <laughs> for this mm-hmm. portrait. But she never saw a penny of it because of what happened. And she had to outlay, in order to do this, she had to buy all the materials, she had to get canvas from the low countries and have it stitched together. She had to get all the paint and all this kind of thing. And she spent about 10,000 livres of her own money to get this portrait, this, this picture painted and never got any money for it. Sounds to me, though, that you were saying that women weren't allowed to paint uh, history, but this sounds almost like history, doesn't it? It does. It's not strictly speaking history, because history paintings were generally of, like, events that happened in ancient times. So her her second husband, who she was, uh, André Vincent, was a history painter, and he would paint things like the... Um, I'm not thinking of one of the portraits. Oh, Belisarius begging and things like that that were scenes from antiquity. Hmm. That's what a history painter painted. Where was Adelaide uh, Labie-Guillard, if I'm getting close to how you say it, uh, where where was she from? Was she from Paris? Oh, she was from Paris. Not a whole lot is known about her family. Her father actually owned a, was a modiste, a sort of, milliner, dressmaker type person. And uh, he owned a shop that at one time had um, Madame Duberry, before she was that person, 
as a shop girl. <laughs> but I think that also predates when Elizabeth was, was around. He sold that shop and, and got some kind of government post. I can't remember what. Uh, but that, you know, that was in Paris, and it was a very sort of successful kind of fashion store. And uh, she, was, she was one of eight children and the only one to survive to adulthood. And uh, so she, all of her siblings died before her and her mother when she was 17. So um, she had no, we don't know what her early art training was or anything. We just know when she was older, she studied with, she studied watercolor and miniatures with Elie Vincent and uh, pastels with uh, Maurice Contin de Latour, who was like, the finest, the best pastelist in Paris at that time. Adelaide was, the title of your novel is The Portraitist, and, and so that's what she wanted to do, is to paint these portraits, or, or that's all she could do to, to make money? That's a, really good, that's a really good question. I think it's probably a combination. I don't know if she would have wanted to become a history painter. She, she was always trying to make money, so, uh, so it's possible this was really the only way she could have a, have a living out of art. Um, her rival, Elizabeth Louise Vigée Lebrun, on the other hand, always had ambitions to be a history painter. And we know that because she wrote about it. But Adelaide, we have nothing except a couple of letters of hers. So we don't really know what she thought, what she wanted to do. So Elizabeth was her rival, and maybe I'll just use the first name, Adelaide's rival. Why could there only be two of them? I mean, wouldn't there be like enough portraits to to do for the for the both of them? Yes. The issue is that they were both of a commensurate level of expertise and talent. There were plenty of other people who were painting, and the thing is that there were other men who were portraitists, but they were the two women, and. At the time that Adelaide, they were both elected to the Academy in the same year, but Elizabeth was the official portraitist for Marie Antoinette. Marie Antoinette sort of leaned on them to have her elected. But the thing is that um, they, the admission to the Academy was limited to four women. They could never be more than four women at a time in the Academy, which is why the rivalry was so fierce between them. At some point, uh, Adelaide is uh, painting and doing her portraits, and there's some questions about whether some man is helping her. I guess more than some man. I guess he was. Uh, was she? A, uh, he a husband or a lover? Her lover, because she was. She had a first husband, and before the French Revolution, divorce was illegal. She could get the best she could do was get a legal separation, so she couldn't marry when she fell in love had a long-term serious relationship with André Vincent. And that was, that was a common thing that was said of any woman painter who, who did really well and was very, very talented, was, oh, a man must have helped her. You know, women couldn't do that sort of thing. So that was something, and even Elizabeth had it. You know, there was a, a history painter who lived in the same building that she did, and there was something saying that... that Somebody said, oh, nobody's ever seen her finish her painting, so probably this man is coming and helping her, which, of course, is not true. These two women were both supremely talented in their own right. 
Well, I appreciate your your telling telling us about the general history of this time and Adelaide's involvement in it. But what you've written is an is a novel. Can you tell us a little bit about the premise of the novel? It's really it's biographical historical fiction, meaning it's about her life, really. But it's her life as imagined by me because we don't have a lot of actual documentary evidence and things that she left behind for us to look at. Which means I, almost all the characters in it, except for a couple of minor characters, were actual historical people who lived. The events in it are all historical. Um, what I had to sort of invent sometimes was Adelaide's, how Adelaide was involved, what, it, what they meant to her, and that sort of thing. Um, so historical fiction... It's definitely fiction. You know, this has come from my imagination of what her life must have been like based on extensive research. You know, all that history that I've been talking to you about is actually in the book as well as part of the story. The story of, of Adelaide, was that well known? Um, you, you said it was extensive research. I mean, is, is this something that was seen as important back then and people wrote about it? No. <laughs> Not at all. In fact, when um, she died in 1802, we don't even know what, or 1803, sorry, um, we don't even know what the cause was exactly. She had been ill, and we don't know where she's buried. Her then-husband, because they did marry eventually when, when divorce became legal, Andre, lived on for another 15 years or so. And when he died, his estate, his paintings went for some large amount of money. He had many of her paintings in his possession, and her paintings sold for pennies at the time. So mm -hmm. nobody thought much of her at the time. I, I really had to rely on two, two sources that gave, and one was an early 20th century source, another one was a more modern one, um, that had as much information as there is about her life, and then also fill in with, with what was happening with Elizabeth, who was sort of paralleling her on a lot of levels, and there's a lot more information about her and a lot more of her pictures existing. And other artists who, and doing the research into the other artists that she interacted with, and the history of the Louvre and the Academy. So it's a question of getting all those things and putting them together into a story that makes sense. Well, I appreciate your telling us about the Louvre and how, what it was like then. I mean, I had no clue. I didn't understand that or... So it wasn't a museum then. It was more a place where artists lived, worked. Yes. Well, the Louvre originally was built as a royal residence. But uh, that was in the phone with Louis XIV at his time. Um, he left Paris because of, you know, uh, uprisings and didn't feel safe there. So no royal person ever actually lived in the Louvre. And uh, it was also never finished. And I have a marvelous map, which is available actually on the web. It's the Turgot, T-U-R-G-O-T, map of Paris, which was done, finished in 1730, I think it was. And this basically massive map has Paris as it was then down to the building level, and even so that there's individual trees in the Tuileries garden. So yeah. what this map shows, the reason that's relevant is because it shows the parts of the Louvre that weren't finished, where there was no roof. So, I, you know, it became, there was 
tap, there was tapestry weaving in the basement. There were artist studios and, and offices and what would be known as grace and favor apartments. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was a very, very different place than, obviously, the, the uh, museum now. But the annual salon, or the, yeah, the biannual salons of the academy took place there in what is called the um, Salon Carré, the square, square, big square room. So it was used for art displays. Suzanne Dunlop is with us. Her book is called The Portraitist, uh, the story of Adelaide Lamille Guillard, uh, who uh, was a, a French painter of the the late 1700s, the 18th century. And uh, on the Historian's Podcast, we do a lot with the American Revolution. And so uh, we turn our attention uh, to France, but it's usually having to do with uh, getting money and troops and ships from them. And all of that really kind of peters out after, uh, I think, 1783 was when the American Revolution ended. Can you give us a little timeline of the uh, French Revolution and, and how it in particular affected Adelaide? Okay, that's a lot more than a brief little, <laughs> little right. thing here. Um, uh, but uh, 1789 was when things really heated up. Stuff had started happening before then. What's really interesting, though, back in, let's roll it back to 1783, um, when Elizabeth, uh, when they were being elected to the academy, that was the year in which they were both elected to the academy. As I said, Elizabeth had a, had a sort of desire to be a history painter. And the piece that she submitted for her election was not a portrait. It was an allegory called Peace Ushering in Abundance. And it was basically because of the end of the American War, which had been sapping the treasury in France. And so now her, was her, her allegory was that now that that's over, abundance will come again. So, you know, so that, so that in an odd way, the American Revolution did actually affect uh, mm -hmm. at least Elizabeth. And then the other piece of this is that Elizabeth had a good friend, uh, Rosalie Fillol, whose husband was the uh, concierge of the Chateau de la Mouette, which was a royal chateau. And she actually ended up, well, first of all, it, this was in Passy, outside of Paris. And mm -hmm. her next-door next neighbor was Benjamin Franklin. She actually did a few, a few portraits of him that still exist. And she was a pastelist. And that was Elizabeth who did that, the rival, or, or somebody completely different? That was her friend, Rosalie, who did that. Oh, Rosalie. And she, okay. Rosalie Fillol was actually guillotined. Oh. So I guess maybe what I'm getting after is when does that come, and how, when, uh, what does Adelaide do in the face of this uh, revolution? In the French, well, she basically... Uh, tries to, you know, get involved with the good side of it, and the, she was all for all the reforms, but when things get bad, got bad. First of all, Elizabeth fled in 1789. She had two, her ties to the court were so close that her life would have been in danger if she had stayed. Um, but Adelaide tried to stay, Adelaide and, and Andre, and, but in 1792, I think it was 1792, after Robespierre was, you know, during the, the height of the terror, they decided they had to get out of Paris 
they didn't leave France, but they went to um, to a suburb, uh, Adelaide and Andre and her two two students who were kind of stuck with them. <laughs> mm-hmm. One of whom became was a really close friend, and they left until things calmed down and then came back to Paris after that. But I don't know. I, I have created scenes where she she sees she's involved in the crowd she gets swept up in the crowd that goes to the Bastille etc cetera, etc cetera. but I have no way of knowing that she actually might have done that or not that's part of the fiction <laughs> part of, of the story this was really an exciting time I was going to say but it's more than that I mean it's a very dangerous time definitely dangerous and she had to tread this very careful line because she had her history as a painter to to members of the royal family and she actually had to you know and and was getting money from them it was how she was being supported but she also was in favor of the reforms that the revolution was going to usher in supposedly peacefully at first but we know how that went i mean she wasn't killed by the revolution or, or was she no, no, not at all. She came back to Paris and had a, she, at, in 1795, you know, the revolution was done. She was allowed to have her apartments in the Louvre, and she lived until 1802 when she died of some, probably some illness. She was only 53 when she died. Do some of her paintings still survive? Yes. In fact, the painting that's on the cover of my book is actually in the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York and is one of the main reasons I ended up doing this whole book (laughs) because it's one of my favorite, favorite works and it's a very famous painting. It's a self-portrait with her two best students standing behind her and it's big and she submitted that to the Academy Salon in 1785 and it's in... uh, and it's in... The Metropolitan. There are others of her paintings. I think the Getty has some. I think there are other museums that have some, some private collections. But there are nothing like as many of her paintings as there are of Elizabeth's because Elizabeth got out of France, traveled around the courts of Europe, and did a lot of, of work after the Revolution. And so her works weren't destroyed the way Adelaide's were. So, you know, there's more maybe to talk about with Elizabeth. You could have done a book about Elizabeth, what? but you did one about Adelaide. Why is that? <laughs> very, very good question. And in fact, I started out writing about Elizabeth because of that. And I didn't, and I knew of Adelaide, but I didn't really know the whole story. And what started to intrigue me about Adelaide is Elizabeth left a three-volume memoir uh, that she probably dictated to someone she lived to be quite old in her 80s, and in her memoir, which I got on my Kindle, and uh, I searched it and searched it, which you can do, which is nice, she never once mentions Adelaide's name, <laughs> even though they were doing the same things at the same time. There's a few oblique references to things that, I, that if you know what to look for, you sort of find them, but I thought, this is really interesting. <laughs> Why Why does she not even... And she talks about a lot of other artists in, in this memoir. So that made me think, ah, conflict, story. <laughs> and yeah. then I, I started writing. And I just, you know, Adelaide was the underdog. She, <laughs> Elizabeth, 
I mean, she didn't have it all. She had her problems for sure, but she was much more famous, more successful, more beautiful. She was very, very pretty. Um, and I just kind of, when I was writing uh, first about Elizabeth, then about both of them, and had friends reading it, everybody felt more drawn to Adelaide because of mm-hmm. her status, I guess, as the underdog. And, and sort of, that's why, basically. So. Wow. Suzanne Dunlop has uh, written 12 works of historical fiction for adults and teens, and you're an author, accelerator, certified book coach. What does that mean? Ah, that, that is um, something I absolutely love to do. I work with authors, uh, either established or aspiring authors, and help them get their books written. I don't write them for them. I act as literally as a coach, like an athletic coach, where I get them, you know, I, I, <laughs> I give them deadlines, I make sure they, they stick to them, I review things, I edit very carefully, and it's just, it's a lovely, it's a really good sort of long-term relationship with someone so that you feel really involved in what they're doing as opposed to just editing something, you know, it's different. I love working with authors. Historical fiction is, of course, my bailiwick, but I also work with authors on other genres and, um, and also nonfiction. I'm, I'm certified in both fiction and nonfiction. I really, really love doing that. It says here uh, that you have had a lifelong interest in women in the arts as a pianist and Nonprofit performing arts executive. I mean, that's you. You pl- play the piano, and you. From my earliest childhood, I was I was uh, a musician, and when I went to graduate school and did my music history degree at Yale, and my PhD, I looked at everything with a sort of feminist lens. That's what I brought to it, and that ended up sort of translating into my historical fiction, which the reason I started writing it is because it's a really great way to get those stories and ideas and everything about history to a much broader audience than a classroom. Would you like to have lived in this uh, time period in uh, 18th century France? Definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) I would say, (laughs) I think, you know, I would probably be dead by this age if I'd lived there. But, um, you know, and the clothes were a pain in the butt, the sanitation was terrible, the the Seine was basically an open sewer, uh, you know, things like that. So, so, no. I mean, it's lovely to look at pictures and to see the gorgeous, you know, dresses and everything like that and, and the, all that sort of thing. But, you know, the, the reality is far from what our rosy image of it is from this distance. <laughs> Author Suzanne Dunlop has joined us to discuss her book, The Portraitist, a novel based on the life of Adelaide Labie Guillard. Suzanne Dunlap's book uh, takes place amid the events of the French Revolution. One early flashpoint in the Revolution was the storming of the Bastille, an event that occurred in Paris on the afternoon of 14 July 1789 when revolutionaries stormed and seized control of the medieval armory, fortress, and political prison known as the Bastille. At the time, the Bastille represented royal authority in the center of Paris. 
The prison, though, contained only seven inmates at the time of its storming, but was seen by the revolutionaries as a symbol of the monarchy's abuse of power. Its fall was the flashpoint of the French Revolution. The official list of conquerors of the Bastille, subsequently compiled, has 954 names, and the total of the crowd was probably fewer than 1,000. A breakdown of occupations included in the list indicates most were local artisans, together with some regular army deserters, and a few distinctive categories, such as 21 wine merchants. In France, 14 July is a national holiday usually called Bastille Day in English. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore.